Hello and welcome to the Forbes India cover story podcast series in association with theindicast.com. My name is Abhishek and it's a Wednesday morning, bright and sunny outside and we have with us my namesake Abhishek Raghunath, the senior features writer at Forbes India. Hi Abhishek. Hi Abhishek, how are you? Doing great, doing great. And also we have after a very long time the editor in chief of Forbes India, Indrajit Gupta or IG as he's known as in the circles. Hi IG, it's great to have you here. It's been a while. Yes, it is. <laughs> and both of you, I think we owe it to our listeners uh, because uh, we have been listed on the iTunes New and Noteworthy as well as the Features podcast list, which is uh, a good thing for us. So it's a th- thanks a lot, all you guys listening out there. Aiji? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's a great uh, great thing for, for Forbes India and for Indicast. We're very happy. Yes. And let's uh, get on with a very popular or a controversial a story that is doing the rounds everywhere, all around the world. Everybody has uh, something or the other to say on this one, and it's about the turmoil that has leaked in countries like Libya, Egypt, Bahrain. So, I, I quote your uh, letter from the editor, and there you said that for the past few weeks, haunting images of thousands of protests from all these countries that I just mentioned have raised hopes of a pro-democracy movement sweeping through North Africa and Middle East. The reality is far from the truth, though, unquote. So why do you think so, considering the American media, they are far more optimistic about getting in democracy and starting the wheels all over again. So are we missing something here by not reading between the lines? Because you, you say it's, it's different. It is. I, I think the way the West, and it's not just media, mm-hmm. has uh, looked at Middle East for the last several decades is in some ways, one could call it self-serving. They're obviously interested in their protecting their own interests, a lot of it to do with uh, their energy needs, and in some ways holding up authoritarian regimes in Egypt, Libya, and several other places. And I think we're at a very, very important tipping point. Perhaps we're looking at it from the old lens. The lens needs to change, which is why I think uh, getting all the the turmoil that you see in the Middle East now, where people, I think, are coming onto the streets to protest against authoritarian regimes, there is sectarian issues cropping up in Bahrain. So it's it's a much more complex issue that we're dealing with. I'm not entirely sure that we've fully understood it, which is what our objective was, to really try and make sense of what's going on. Maybe Abhishek has something to add to it. If you take a look at all the reports mostly concentrated on how the citizens of these countries are fed up with the autocratic regimes and they are just protesting. But uh, what is kind of not taken into account is the kind of regime changes that are taking place are not exactly conducive to the people over there. It's only the faces that are being changed. The regime and the backup behind the whole face is still the same. Like just look at Egypt. It's the army's taken over there. Right. And it's the same case with Tunisia as well. In Lebanon, it's been replaced by a government that's standing on the shoulders of Iran and Syria, which, as we all know, are not exactly conducive to the ideals of democracy. And in Bahrain, well, the Saudi king is making sure that no changes take place in Bahrain. So the protests, even though over there they are sectarian, but they're still falling under the purview of the Saudi Arabian government and the U.S. government, in whose interest it is to keep the monarchy in Bahrain alive. For the simple reason that if the monarchy in Bahrain falls down, Iran's fear of influence uh, widens. And that is not something that anyone in the West or or in the Middle East wants. Right. And and all of this, uh, if I may ask, if I'm an Indian reader, it's a Forbes India, when I pick up that magazine from the stands, or if I'm a subscriber, then how is it relevant to me as a reader? What, What is 
India have to gain or lose if something goes wrong somewhere in, let's say, an Egypt or a Bahrain or an Iran? Yeah, I think uh, two clear issues. One is that um, all of these countries that you spoke about provide employment. So, and a very large part of our inward remittances come from there. So we earn uh, significant amounts of money. In fact, I read that there are 18,000 Indians in Libya alone. And from the article, I also found that uh, 5 million in that region. So it's a pretty big number then, Indians. That's right. And, of course, the issue that everyone's been talking about, oil. So our economy, the 9% growth that we're achieving, a lot of it is driven. And 70% of those oil imports come from, from the countries that are from that region. Right. So we're heavily dependent on any escalation in oil prices can in some ways disrupt our entire economy. So that's the significance of it. Right. And, and you goaded me to read one of the articles on the Indian Express, which spoke about Iran and India. How is Iran important to India in, in this whole? Yeah. At this point in time, I think what has clearly happened is that between the two big gainers in the strife have been Turkey and Iran, clearly, because I think they're the ones that have in some ways been held up as, well, for want of a better word, role models. Right. Clearly, I mean, Turkey and Iran have been at loggerheads for the past few months, and this whole crisis has in some ways widened that chasm between the two. And Iran is a big source of gas, and India has been in negotiations to in some ways get uh, supplies of that gas, which would in some ways reduce our dependence on the oil that comes to us. 70% of, as I said, of oil imports come from the Middle East, you know, the Gulf states in some ways. But that Iran plan has in some ways been difficult for us to build the whole Iran pipeline because it has to come through Pakistan. And we're not sure that it's secure enough for us to, in some ways, get hold of that gas without any disruptions. So Iran has been an issue. We have another problem on our hands because of the Israeli-Turkish divide. That's also created its own set of problems for us because we were hoping to get gas from places like Georgia and Azerbaijan through Turkey and Israel. The plan has also kind of run into trouble because of the geopolitics in the region. Because Israel and Turkey are at loggerheads as well. So uh, we do have a big issue because if any disruptions happen in the in the Gulf states, we're at great risk. Asia particularly, India, China and Japan. Yeah, well, most of the oil we import comes through this strait called the Strait of Hormuz. That's bordered by Iran on one side and Saudi Arabia and Oman on the other. And the point with that is if there's any disruption in relations over there, that strait for some reason can't be used then we lose out on all our oil, on the physical supply of oil. And you have to keep in mind that the Indian government has only 9.8 million barrels of oil in reserve. That's equal to around two weeks of our needs. And two weeks is not a lot because if you see, the Libyan conflict has been going on for over a month now, for around a month now, actually. So imagine if there would be some sort of a disruption in Saudi Arabia or Oman and we couldn't use the freight anymore. I think going back to what I said on how Turkey and Iran are the two main gainers, it's an interesting thing to see how these two countries are the main gainers because Turkey is pro-democracy while Iran is obviously more nationalistic and authoritarian. The reason why Turkey was just such a strong contender and such a strong favorite out of nowhere as a model to follow for the Middle East is the Prime Minister Erdogan, he was the first major Arab leader to call for Hosni Mubarak uh, to step down in Egypt. This was right in the start of the uh, protest in Egypt when Erdogan took a big bet saying that if the people do not want you, you need to step down. 
and this could have backfired terribly because Egypt is one of the major powers in the region. Right. But he took the call and he said, you know, you have to step down now. And so he won a lot of brownie points over there. It's under him that Turkey actually gained acceptance into the European Union, and it was under him that a lot of economic reforms were started off in Turkey. And also, Erdogan doesn't have any problems taking on Israel, so it's not that he's seen as a lackey of the West. You know, he's seen as a person strong enough in his own right to take on Israel, and you know, in some cases, disagree with the European Union and the West, who are easily pro-Israel. And at the same time, he also knows what the people. in the region need he knows the pulse of the region that's why turkey has emerged as a role model to follow in the region and if you take iran the only thing that iran has going for it is that it doesn't have any problems taking on the us and that is something that everyone else likes in the region i'm talking about because you know taking on the biggest country in the world taking on the leader of the free world is not something that everyone over there has the guts to do we've all seen what happened to saddam when he did that but the fact that iran still continues to do it that's one of the plus points that they have and then now you have increasing protests in yemen as well mm-hmm. and in bahrain and iran's trying to play both of those up as well so that's where it's trying to create havoc right and is oil the reason why which gives confidence to certain countries like let's say iran to to go ahead with uh, playing their cards because if if that's the case then it's slightly a dangerous considering i also read in the article that uh, the plight of water supply in these countries is so bad that a country like syria could become a desert in in the middle east it used to be a joke that oil is cheaper than water but it's no more a joke if we are talking about proportions as drastic as these and of course the inflation you also mentioned about it that the protests in all these countries are not only because of the dictators but also because of the economic policies or because of not not politics but economy so i i remember watching a, a picture wherein there was a zimbabwean resident he held a 1 million dollar note which had an expiry of march 31st or no longer than that so what what you could buy for 10 rupees you would have to spend 10 times more to buy a loaf of bread so the problems out there are not just about oil but much more as basic as water or inflation or coming down to the roots of the common man so each country in a way correct me if i'm wrong are are facing different problems yet as a reader what i perceived it was that it's it's only about a a regime that has to be toppled to restart the wheels and that's not exactly the case here yes the author of the cover story sandeep aslikar who heads think tank called strategic foresight and he does work across the world advising governments on what to do has worked for he and his team a 100 member research team has done work for the last two years on the whole water crisis facing the middle east and it's it's serious it's very very serious because the water table is receding faster than anywhere else in the world you know most of the water is used for agriculture for food grains most of the major rivers are there are running dry therefore you're looking at a pretty significant humanitarian crisis in the next 10 years and therefore our understanding of the region cannot be driven by just oil alone right. oil is just one of the many things you talked about uh, economics being at the heart of the conflict yes that's exactly the point that i think sandeep has made in his essay right that you know it's not just about authoritarian pro democracy issues but it's really about uh, in some ways human dignity inequity not state policies not kind of i think looking at issues of social justice and the uh, growth that is equitable in some ways it's interesting because i think in india there is so much of debate around growth and equity right between um, amartya sen and jagdish bhagwati so i think there are lessons there about inclusive growth 
right there in our own neighborhood of what could go wrong if we don't pay attention to inclusive growth so that's one of the reasons why i think the story is significant you know all this whole tussle between we keep hearing about the pmo mm-hmm. and the msc in india itself right. where sonia leading the msc and prime minister manmohan singh being more perhaps concerned about driving growth mm-hmm. i think those debates are healthy i think it's a good debate to have in this country when when you have you know 40% of the people living below the poverty line so you need those pulls and pressures and the debates uh, one of the reasons why we are in a pressure cooker situation in the middle east is that those debates never happen right you know they're stifled the voices are stifled you know so there is no scope to dissent or protest or blog about it as we used to in india you know so we've got to value those freedoms of expression which i think is a fundamental right unfortunately those democratic structures don't exist there so to believe that democracy will take over is not quite the right perspective i mean things there is a vacuum there I mean, like abhishek just mentioned that in a lot of the cases the military is the only viable institution which is disciplined and systematic enough to fill that vacuum are we to judge that democracy is the way to go or there could be occasions where certain countries may need a dictator probably a benevolent dictator if there is one if we can call that and probably that could be a good start or is it is it the fact that democracy is the way to go well the way i look at it right now it doesn't actually matter who comes into power because they are going to face the same problems that the people have been facing as now that is high inflation poor standards of living mm-hmm. and zero infrastructure and if you look at the world markets right now you can only see commodity prices going one way and that's up we've had experts in india itself saying that if commodity prices are going to keep going up at least that of steel i'm just taking the simple example of steel because that's what you need to build most of your basic infrastructure if steel prices keep going up and food production across the world is dropping so your food prices will also go up so your food and steel both these prices are going up people will not have enough money to buy the food they need and they won't have enough money to buy matter to make their bridges and roads from so inflation is not going to come down so any regime which comes into power be it a democracy or a dictatorship will have to face high inflation and it doesn't look like countries like india and china itself are struggling to rein in inflation so it's very difficult to see how a new power that comes into these countries is going to tackle that problem also you have to keep in mind now that uh, the people in these countries have revolted and protested and they knew it has worked they are not going to be sitting down quietly if they fail to see results what you could probably see is something like a pendulum democracy that or not not a democracy a pendulum country that's like in pakistan where military dictator comes into power the people are unhappy they force him out they get a democratic party into power but they see that the democratic party also can't give them economic and social justice so it again goes back to the military and then from the military it comes back to some party and you know it keeps swinging between these two things because people they are basically just unhappy but no one is delivering the results right abhishek i have a question for you how many hours and nights of research have you done to to know that the politics of all the countries combined and to be able to put them in words well i've been following this right since the summer since when the whole protest started in tunisia so yeah it's been more than two and a half months now since been working on the story and researching it from possibly every angle and talking to a lot of experts both in india as well as the west and seeing what they all of them have had to say about this so what are they saying is, is there any hope because the way you put it the infrastructure as well as food it's quite a tough gig to pull off for any government or a dictator who comes in there so any possible solutions that you might have heard from people who are in the middle of it from india's point of view what we have to make sure is that a lot of people are saying that india is a huge democracy and 
you know we have to go out and we have to support these regimes and you know we have to support the people but i don't think we can actually do that because our economic and strategy do not permit us to do that like uh, we cannot go out and support some of these countries which are anti israel because israel has been one of our greatest trading partners and one of our greatest friends over the past couple of decades so we can't afford to anger israel but at the same time we can't afford to be seen as someone who's not pro democracy they have a lot of problems internally in the region and i don't think india is in a position that india can go in and step in to say what is right and what is wrong when when most of the problems that they face are the same ones that we are facing over here in our own country like a large part of our country doesn't have decent standards of living mm-hmm. we are also suffering from high inflation mm-hmm. the only thing that we don't have is really really bad living conditions or an autocratic regime since we are a democracy we can go out we can voice our opinions probably you could not But, have written this article if you were in a yeah. in libya and working for a newspaper there <laughs> yeah you couldn't have an idea this is just one final question what was the brief that was given to you know mr sandeep because the article comes out as an opinion piece a little bit more than just reporting very simply i think reportage in this case because of the huge expanse and it, it kind of ranges as uh, we discussed across north africa and large parts of the middle east region mm-hmm. is a very difficult project for any newspaper or magazine to cover in a in depth sort of way so you can go country by country but sitting out of india given the fact that we need to really get a both a bird's eye view and a one's eye view of what's going on and try and decode what it means for us is a very difficult frankly project for any any of us so what we did was to do the next best thing saying that can we kind of go to a person who really understands this region in a in depth manner and help make sense of it for our indian readers mm-hmm. i think sandeep is perhaps the best guy sitting out of bombay he travels widely across that region knows the ground level issues you know it's it's an essay it's it's not a reportage in the classical journalistic sense Right. but i think it it helps us understand because a lot of the reportage is being done out of libya and egypt where the crisis has reached kind of clearly a boiling point but uh, here i think the whole idea was to step back and really understand this you know what's going on in a deeper sort of way and uh, he's done that i think with great skill because he really understands the region and its geopolitics so well right in fact some part of the article and i might just give away a little bit here Uh, talks about he being invited by Mubarak's wife and uh, he talks about how uh, the different things that she did for the slum dwellers and for the common men there and so if you have access to people like those then the reporting is original and uh, integrity wise it's it's there so there is first hand information as it can get well all you listeners out there pick up this uh, issue of Forbes India and would love to know your comments on this podcast thanks a lot abhishek and uh, ig for your time thank you abhishek thank you thanks and- abhishek Thank you and you can find this podcast on uh, business.in.com as well as theindicast.com and if you want to subscribe to Forbes India all you need to do is sms forbes to 51818 that's forbes to 51818 and find the Forbes India podcast on iTunes as well just search Forbes India and uh, you can subscribe to us it's free thanks a lot again bye bye